1: The town of Circleville is known for its annual pumpkin show. But what has really put the town on the map is something far more unpleasant. Namely, some mysterious letters that were being sent to certain residents in the town for over 20 years. The sender was aware of the townspeople's deepest secrets and threatened to reveal them to everyone in the entire town. Circleville is located in the U.S. state of Ohio, and being relatively close to Columbus, Ohio's largest city, it has over the years attracted many young families with children. It has a population of about 10,000 and has been described as a safe place where everyone knows everyone else. But the town is also famous, or rather infamous, for the anonymous letter writer. clear who was the first to receive a letter from the secret sender. Many sources say that the first letters were sent to a woman named Mary, but she received her letters in 1977, and the threatening letters actually started dropping as early as 1976. However, it was Mary who first brought the matter to light. Mary Gillespie lived with her husband Ron and their two young daughters in Circleville. Mary worked as a school bus driver, so she was quite well known by many of the town's children and their parents. In 1977, Mary found a letter in her mailbox stating that the author knew Mary was having an affair with a man named Gordon Massey. Gordon worked in the same school district as Mary, but had a different job. The author of the letter wrote that they had been watching Mary's house and knew that she had two young children. The author wanted Mary to end the relationship with Gordon and implied that if she did not, the author would hurt her children. The person wrote that Mary's children would suffer for their mother's sins and even threatened to shoot the children if she did not break off the affair. The letters were written in block letters. It is quite clear that this was not the author's usual handwriting, but that the author had chosen to write in this way so that their handwriting would not be recognisable. The letter also contained minor spelling and grammatical errors, which may have been intentional or the author's own style. Of course, there was no name or address of the sender, and no details gave any clue as to who the author might be. The letters were postmarked in Columbus, which meant that they would have been sent from there but that was about all there was to go on. For some reason, Mary didn't initially tell anyone she had received a threatening letter, either to her husband, Ron, or to the police, even though the letter contained a threat against her children. Mary thought the letter must have been some kind of prank, and let it go. But a week later, Mary received another letter with content similar to the first. In the letter the writer announced how he had been watching Mary's house and her children and wanted her to end her relationship with Gordon Massey. The author also claimed that the letters were by no means a joke and should be taken seriously. However, Mary still didn't mention the letters to anyone and hoped she wouldn't receive any more. A few weeks after she received the first letter, Mary's husband Ron also received a threatening letter. The letter stated that Ron's wife, Mary, was having an affair with Gordon and urged Ron to do something about it. The author wrote that she had been watching the family home and knew what kind of car they drove and where the couple's children went to school. The author suggested that Mary and Gordon did not deserve to live and that perhaps Ron should catch them in the act and kill them both. The tone of the letter was threatening. And it scared Ron out of his wits. He showed the letter to his wife, who admitted that she had received two similar letters before. Ron was angry, because he would have liked to know that someone was threatening his wife and children like that. When Ron asked Mary if the accusations about her affair with Gordon were true, Mary flatly denied it and said that she was definitely not having an affair with Gordon. Ron received another letter, expressing surprise that Ron had let the news of the affair pass. The new letter said that if Ron did nothing about Mary's affair with Gordon, the writer would publicise the relationship, contacting the radio and putting up signs all over town telling about Mary and Gordon's affair. The letter also said that the author would write defamatory things about the couple's daughter on the signs. The letters were of great concern to Mary and Ron. So far, Mary and Ron hadn't told anyone about the threatening messages. Eventually, however, they decided to tell a few of their relatives. At a dinner party, Mary told Ron's sister and her husband, Paul Freshour. Everyone was naturally surprised by the letters, but Mary also told them that she suspected who wrote the letters, as they contained information that only Mary and her colleagues knew. Mary therefore thought that the writer must be someone employed at the school. And she thought specifically of one of the other school bus drivers, David Longbury, who on a couple of occasions had tried to ask Mary out. Mary had declined the invitations, and Mary now suspected that David was angry and was trying to get back at Mary by sending threatening letters to her family. The family thought they should send David some similar letters, but without any serious threats. They hoped there would be no more letters once it became clear to the sender that Mary and Ron knew his identity. So, Mary asked Paul, Ron's brother-in-law, to write a few letters to David to get him to stop sending the letters. At first, Mary's plans seemed to work. The letters stopped. Or at least, Mary and Ron didn't get any threatening letters in the following weeks. In August 1977, Mary had gone on vacation to Florida and Ron was home alone with their daughters. On the 19th of August, the family home phone rang, and Ron answered. Ron apparently recognised the caller, and the caller said something that led Ron to believe that he was the one who had sent them the threatening letters. When Ron ended the call, he told his daughters that he would go to the person who had called and then come back home. It is unclear whether they had agreed on the phone to meet or whether Ron had recognised the caller's voice and now wanted to seek out the person because he knew where the person lived. Before Ron left, he took his gun with him. The fact that Ron left his daughters at home alone has been the subject of a great deal of speculation because Ron's daughters were minors, both about 10 years old. It was clear from the letters that Mary and Ron's home was being watched, and that the author knew about their daughters, so it is perhaps a little odd that Ron left the girls at home alone late at night. However, Ron never got the chance to meet the letter writer. Shortly after leaving home, he lost control of his car and drove off the road with disastrous consequences. Ron was not wearing a seatbelt when the car skidded off the road and hit a tree, killing him instantly. When the police arrived at the scene, Ron's body was half hanging out of the open window, which says a lot about the intensity of the accident. Under Ron's body, next to the bench, was the gun he had taken with him, which had been fired with a single shot. It was never established who fired the gun or why someone had fired it. However, police say the shot was fired after Ron had left his home. Upon further investigation, it was discovered that Ron had been driving the car with a blood alcohol level of 1.6. The blood alcohol limit in Ohio is 0.8. Ron's family was surprised by this because Ron didn't normally drive while intoxicated. None of his daughters had seen Ron drink alcohol that night, but at some point that night, Ron must have been drinking, perhaps secretly, before he got in the car. The road where Ron lost control of his car was familiar to him, but in the dark of night, at high speed and in a drunken state, it was possible that he could have lost control of his car. According to some eyewitness accounts, it appeared that Ron had been chasing another car, but this detail is not mentioned in many sources, so it's unclear if it's true. The police who investigated Ron's accident initially looked into the possibility that someone had deliberately run Ron off the road and caused his death. A suspect was interviewed where they used a lie detector test, but eventually the police concluded that the suspect had nothing to do with the accident. Ron's family were of the opinion that it could not have been an accident and that it must have been something to do with the letters Mary and Ron had received. Eventually, however, the police informed Mary that the investigation had been closed and that Ron's death was being treated as an accident. After Ron's accident, several Circleville residents and some local businesses received threatening letters regarding Ron's death. The letters stated that the police officer who had investigated the accident when Ron drove off the road was hiding the fact that Ron's death was a homicide and not an accident. Some letters suggested that Mary and Gordon were somehow involved in the accident, pointing out that Mary was conveniently away on a trip when her husband was killed. One person who was convinced that Ron's death was no accident was Ron's brother in law, Paul Freshauer, whom I mentioned earlier. He was one of the people Mary and Ron confided in after receiving the threatening letters. Paul claimed that immediately after the accident, the police officer had told him that there was something suspicious about Ron's death. Later, the police officer had changed his mind and said that it was clear that it was an accident. In 1979, Two years after Ron's death Gordon Massey divorced his wife It was Gordon who had allegedly Had an affair with Mary As I told you about earlier Gordon and Mary now confirmed That they had had an affair But claimed that it had only begun After Mary had received the first letters I don't think anyone bought it It seems that Mary and Gordon Were trying to make it sound As if these letters Somehow brought them together I have to say that I find their admission a little curious. To my ears, it grates a bit that they claimed the relationship started after the letters and not after Ron's death. It seems likely the author was aware that they were having an affair, which accounts for the letters. Then there's the fact that Mary didn't tell her husband about the letters from the start, preferring to keep them secret even though they contained threats against their children. And it wasn't just Gordon and his wife who split up. So did Paul and Ron's sister, whose breakup ended in bitter divorce. Paul's wife claimed that Paul had been abusive to her, and Paul claimed that his wife had cheated on him. After the divorce, Paul was given custody of the children and allowed to keep the couple's house. His now ex-wife moved into a trailer in Mary's backyard. Although Ron's death was considered an accident, police were keen to find out who had been sending the threatening letters and alarming the citizens of Circleville. The letters usually contained information about the recipient's most intimate private lives. Some received threatening phone calls, and the letter writer also stepped up their threats by putting up signs in town saying defamatory things about the townspeople. Before Ron's death... Mary had occasionally had to check her school bus route before starting her shift to make sure she wouldn't pass any of the terrible signs on her route. The letters, signs and phone calls made the atmosphere in the town very tense. People were constantly gossiping about each other. The relationship between Mary and Gordon was on everyone's lips. Circleville residents were brewing theories about when their relationship had begun – Meanwhile, the police were trying various ways to catch the person who was harassing the town with these letters. The police worked with the post office, going around to areas where signs were particularly prominent and interviewing residents there. However, the identity of the writer remained unknown, and letters continued to arrive on a regular basis in people's letterboxes. It was clear to police officers and citizens that the writer was not afraid to make crude threats. They threatened to kill, urged recipients to kill others, or wrote that they knew some details about unsolved murders. Many people were very frightened by the letters and feared, for example, that something might happen to their children. Many people were surprised that nothing could be kept secret from the writer, who seemed to know everything about everyone. The people of Circleville felt that they could trust no one, not even their close friends or family, And this may have been the writer's intention. In February 1983, six years after the letters had started to appear, Mary and Gordon were still together. Several years had passed since Ron's death, and Mary had managed to move on with her life. However, she still received threatening letters suggesting that she knew more about her husband's death than she had let on, and that she may have even arranged it. The letters also contained threats against her children, suggesting that they should avenge their mother's mistakes. On the 7th of February 1983, Mary was at work. It was half past three and Mary had to pick up the children from school, so she took an empty bus along her usual route. Mary was driving along a large but rather remote road when, in passing, she noticed a large sign hanging on a fence a sign that said derogatory and sexually explicit things about her 12-year-old daughter. So Mary pulled over to the side of the road to tear the sign down. As she did, she hit a cardboard box attached to the back of the sign. She took the sign and cardboard box with her and continued her workday as usual. It was only when Mary got home that she looked inside the box. When she opened it, she discovered that the sign had been a trap. Inside the box was a loaded gun with a string tied to the trigger. If Mary had torn down the sign any other way, the gun would have gone off and probably fired a shot straight into her face. Although Mary was generally not much for involving the police, she could see that what looked like a trap set specifically for her was the sort of thing that should be reported anyway. Mary told the police that the sign had not been there the morning she had driven the children to school. Although the sign was on a slightly remote road, there was a lot of traffic on the site because the road connected some different remote neighbourhoods to the centre of Circleville. The officers examined the gun that had been found in the trap and discovered that someone had tried to scrape off the serial number on the gun. However, the attempt had failed, so police were able to look up who owned the gun. To everyone's surprise, police records revealed that the gun was registered in the name of Paul Freshour, Ron's former brother-in-law. Soon after they found out who owned the gun, the police went to Paul's home to question him. When they asked Paul about the gun and how it had ended up in the trap set to frame Mary, Paul said the gun had been stolen a few weeks earlier. He had not used the gun often and therefore had not immediately noticed that it was missing and had not reported it stolen. The police officers didn't quite buy Paul's explanation and asked him to come to the police station for further questioning. During his interrogation, Paul answered all the officers' questions and seemed genuinely upset that someone had tried to kill Mary. Paul claimed that he had nothing to do with either the threatening letters or the posters. The police searched Paul's house and found nothing suspicious. For example, they were looking for material that Paul might have used to make the signs. Finally, the police asked Paul for a handwriting sample, which Paul agreed to without protest. The police asked Paul to copy one of the threatening letters word for word, copying the author's handwriting as best he could. A method that experts have pointed out is certainly not the official way to take a handwriting sample. Nor can it be considered reliable. If someone is asked to copy someone else's handwriting in this way, they are bound to look alike, especially as the text being copied in this case was written in block capitals. However, the police were so convinced by the handwriting sample that they arrested Paul the same day on suspicion of attempting to murder Mary. The arrest was influenced by the fact that Paul had also failed a lie detector test. For many Circleville residents, Paul's arrest came as a shock, because it implicitly meant that Paul could have been the author of the threatening letters. Mary, however, was not so surprised that Paul was arrested. Paul's ex-wife, Mary's sister-in-law, had told Mary that Paul despised Mary for having an affair with Gordon. According to the ex-wife, Paul had been very openly hostile to Mary and had often spoken of her in an extremely derogatory manner. The ex-wife also believed that Paul had to be the author of the threatening letters. She reasoned that in their previous home together, she had seen a few letters. However, she had never raised the issue with the police and, for example, had not spoken about it when she and Paul were in court to fight for custody of their children after the divorce. Mary, however, was convinced by what her former sister-in-law had said, and she thought it was possible that Paul had really set her up and sent the threatening letters. The trial of Paul began in October 1983. The trial was followed very closely and was widely reported, especially in the city of Circleville, but also in other parts of Ohio. Even though the trial was only about the attempted murder of Mary, many people were still curious about whether they would find out who sent the threatening letters and whether Paul had actually sent them. Even during the trial, threatening letters were sent. Mary told the court that she had not initially suspected that Paul might be the sender of the letters. She'd only begun to suspect Paul after her sister-in-law had told her of her suspicions. During the trial, the prosecutor questioned Paul's boss, who said that Paul had not turned up for work on the day the trap for Mary had been set on the roadside. The sources reporting this case disagree on the reason why Paul did not show up for work. Some sources indicate that he had a day off, while other sources give the impression that Paul did not show up, even though he was supposed to. What is certain, however, is that he was not at work that day. The handwriting expert testified that the text on the sign was Paul's handwriting and that the text on the threatening letters Mary received was also Paul's handwriting. This led to the prosecution being allowed to use the threatening letters as evidence in court, even though they themselves had nothing to do with the whole case.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com people
1: today. The prosecutor used a total of 39 letters as evidence in court, all of which were letters Mary had received. The letters were used to prove that the sender of the letters had long been at odds with Mary and had threatened to kill her for years. Although there was a lot of circumstantial evidence against Paul, The defence also had some witnesses who were able to undermine the credibility of the prosecution's claims. At least three people could provide Paul with an alibi for the time when the trap must have been set up on the roadside. These people said they had seen Paul in his own backyard. Another bus driver, who had driven the same route as Mary just 20 minutes before the trap was found, said he had not seen the trap on the roadside at that time. One of Paul's friends said that Paul had told him that his gun had been stolen and that he had helped Paul look for it. This could, of course, also be evidence of long-term planning on Paul's part. The defence also repeatedly emphasised the fact that Paul's fingerprints had not been found on the trap, the sign, or the gun. In fact, there was nothing directly linking Paul to the trap, only that the gun was registered in his name. Paul had brought the gun from a colleague, but I couldn't find any information about when he had bought it. Paul did not speak in court himself, and his lawyer did not want Paul to testify at trial. A couple of different sources indicate that this was because if Paul had testified in court, more than a thousand letters would have been admitted as evidence. The lawyer felt that this would be prejudicial to Paul. Paul has subsequently said that he very much regrets not speaking at the trial. The trial lasted only four days in total, and it did not take long for the jury to find Paul guilty of attempting to murder Mary. Paul received the harshest possible sentence, 25 years in prison. Only after seven years would he be able to apply for parole. When Paul was jailed, the citizens of Circleville could breathe a sigh of relief. Six years of threatening letters had now come to an end. But for Paul's friends and family, the verdict came as a shock. Paul was fired from his job and lost custody of his children and his home. Some people close to Paul were outraged that important evidence had been ignored during the trial, or not mentioned at all. Whether it says one thing or the other depends a little on which source you turn to. A witness had seen a blonde man put up the sign and trap on the side of the road. According to the witness, the man had left his light yellow car on the side of the road near the fence and the sign. When the man had noticed the passing car, he had turned his head and face so that he could not be seen properly. The man couldn't have been Paul, as Paul didn't own a yellow car and had dark, almost black hair. Paul was also significantly larger than the man the witness had seen on the side of the road. Although everyone had assumed that the threatening letters would stop now that Paul was in prison, this was far from the case. Pretty soon after his sentencing, the letters started coming in the same way as always, to Circleville residents as well as the town's businesses and government agencies. The police investigating Ron's death and Paul's possible involvement received a letter saying that Mary was behind all the letters. The letter also said that the person who had run Ron's car off the road causing his death had also committed another murder in 1980. Vicky Koch, 25, who worked as a teacher, had left her apartment in Circleville to attend a family party in another town but she never made it. A few days after Vicky disappeared, her car was found abandoned on the side of the road, and after a few more weeks, Vicky's body was found in a field in Madison County, in the state of Iowa, far from Ohio. The letter received by the police thus suggested that Ron and Vicky's killer was the same person. At this point, the police suspected that there were two authors of the letters— There was the original author and a new author who had joined later. The new writer claimed that Mary was the author of the letters and suggested that the police somehow knew and concealed the identity of the sender of the old letters. The police still suspected Paul, even though he was in prison, where it would have been more difficult for him to send letters. The police contacted the prison warden and made it clear to him that he had to make sure that Paul could not send letters to anyone from inside the prison walls. As a result, Paul was under constant surveillance. Every time he had a visitor, the visitor and Paul were subjected to a thorough body search before and after their appointment. The mail that Paul received and sent was also checked. Despite these efforts, however, letters continued dropping, and eventually the warden was forced to put Paul in solitary confinement, which is certainly not something you just do. Solitary confinement can be extremely damaging to the psyche, and many prisoners have found it traumatic. Paul was put in solitary confinement a total of three times, but despite this, Letters continued to pester the citizens of Circleville. Finally, the warden wrote a formal statement to the police detailing all the different measures that had been put in place to prevent Paul from sending letters from prison. The warden said he was sure the letters could not have originated from inside the prison. They had to come from someone other than Paul. While I was reading up on this case, I wondered if signs were still being put up while Paul was in prison. Of course, I may have missed this information somewhere, but I don't think it's been mentioned anywhere else. If the signs had stopped appearing, it would have indicated that it was Paul who'd put them up in the first place. Another thing that argued against Paul being the sender of the letters was that all the letters were stamped in Columbus, which obviously meant that all the letters were sent from there. But Paul was in jail in the city of Lima, Ohio, which is about 240 miles from Columbus. Of course, it is possible that Paul had bribed one or more of the guards to assist him in sending the letters. But the question is whether he really could have done so without being detected. Hundreds of letters were sent during Paul's time in prison and subject to constant surveillance. So... One would think that sending so many letters without being detected would be somewhat circumstantial. A few sources mention that Paul used to work as a prison officer. This might make one think that he had a special knowledge of the prison and was therefore able to send letters without anyone noticing. It seems a bit unlikely, though. I don't think he could have sent so many letters from prison without being found out. After serving seven years, which was the minimum sentence for the crime Paul was convicted of, Paul applied for parole. However, the application was not accepted. The authorities said they could not release Paul because he had continued to write and send threatening letters from inside the prison. They believed that Paul had shown no remorse for what he had done and that the letter writing proved that Paul still did not understand the seriousness of what he had done. About a week after the refusal was issued, Paul himself received a threatening letter. In it, the sender wrote that he was behind Paul's imprisonment and that he had done so well that Paul would probably never be released. Paul then received a few more letters inside the prison. It could be argued that Paul could have sent these letters to himself to prove to the authorities that he was not the sender of the letters, but since the letters were also sent to other people... Paul was hardly likely to be the originator. He had already learned that the letters were not helping his case, so why would he continue to send them? When Paul had served 10 years of his sentence, he was finally released. The letters had not stopped, so perhaps the authorities had concluded that Paul was unlikely to be the sender of the letters. Since his release... Paul has received a lot of publicity. Among other things, he has given a few interviews in which he has sworn his innocence. According to Paul, he wrote and sent a few letters. But these were the letters that he sent to David Longbury at Mary and Ron's request... ...when they suspected him of being the sender of the letters. After his release, Paul sent a 164-page letter to the FBI in which he had collected various materials that he believed could prove his innocence. In this letter, Paul went into great detail about the facts of the case and various rumours surrounding it. If you search for it, you can find this letter in its entirety online. And while it seems to make sense at first, it gradually becomes more and more bizarre. Some sources have referred to the letter as a manifesto, And I think that's a pretty apt description. All things considered, Paul's involvement in the case seems quite natural. After all, he was in prison for over 10 years. If he is truly innocent, he has had many years to gather the information about the case that eventually resulted in the manifesto-type letter he sent to the FBI. Paul's friends and family were there for him after his release... And it's really primarily his ex-wife's family and friends who believed Paul was guilty, with two exceptions. Paul's two daughters were on their father's side, but Paul's son believed Paul was guilty. He never visited his father in prison, and I'll come back to that later in the episode. Paul died in June 2012 at the age of 70. Around the time Paul was released from prison, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries decided they wanted to make an episode about the Circleville letter writer. That episode is still available on YouTube. Before the episode aired, and according to some sources, even before the producers had even started filming in Circleville, they received a threatening letter. The letter said that the producers should forget Circleville and not come to town. The letter also stated that the producers were not to insult or hurt the police chief of the town of Circleville. Although a letter is referred to everywhere, the letter received by the producers was in fact a large postcard written in block letters similar to those used in the letters received by the inhabitants of Circleville. The postcard was also signed Circleville Letter Writer, If the letter came when filming of the show had begun, it is quite possible that there had been a rumour about the filming of the television show and that many people in the small town might have come across the film crew. Once the writer had become aware of the television show, the sender of the letter could be anyone. But if the letter came before filming had even begun, how on earth could the writer know that such a show would be made? If the producers had contacted the Circleville police before filming began, then the letter writer was probably someone with contacts in there. Either way, the episode about the Circleville letter writer was produced despite the threat, and they spent a few weeks in Circleville filming and interviewing people involved. Paul, who was on parole at the time, was also interviewed for the TV programme. Mary and Gordon declined all requests for interviews... As far as I understand, neither of them has ever given interviews or made public statements in connection with this case. Some other townspeople were also opposed to the filming of the TV programme, including Paul's ex-wife, who did not like the case being reported on TV. It is unclear when the threatening letters stopped. Many sources say that the last letters were sent in 1999, but in the mid-1990s, the police stopped playing an active role in the case. Over 20 years, almost every resident of Circleville had received at least one threatening letter. So over the years, tens of thousands of letters were written and sent. And then there were all the horrible and offensive signs along the roads. Many residents moved out of town because of the letters, and some even went so far as to change their names to protect themselves. Over the years, there have been many attempts to find out who sent the letters. Many experts have examined the letters to see if the author was male or female, or to find out if the author was young or old when the first letters were written. Because there are spelling mistakes in the letters, researchers believe that the author is not very well educated. For example, the author spelled the word lonely by replacing the letter E with an I. The same goes for the word guilty, where the author has replaced the letter U with an I. Some researchers believe that the author of the letters is a man, while others believe that the author is a woman trying to pass herself off as a man. In many cases, what the letters say is quite horrific. They talk about killing violence, torture, sexual abuse of children and other horrors. The author threatens the recipients of the letters and tries to incite them to commit terrible crimes. The author also implies that the recipients themselves are guilty of terrible acts. In fact, it seems that the letter writer has felt great satisfaction in stirring up fear and chaos in Circleville. The writer seemed to be interested in the affairs of the town, both in the private lives of the citizens and in political policy decisions. Indeed, the recipients of the letters were not only private citizens, but also government agencies and various businesses. No one knows why the letters suddenly stopped. Did the letter writer get bored? Did the letter writer move away from Circleville? Or perhaps did the letter writer die? To this day, the case remains unsolved. Scientists are still not sure whether there was only one author or several, but most seem to lean towards the theory that there were at least two. The most popular theory, and one that I myself subscribe to, is that the original letters and the crime against Paul and Mary are two completely different cases. I don't think Paul had set the trap for Mary. Nor do I think he wrote the threatening letters. Rather, I and many others have a theory that Paul's ex-wife set a trap for Paul. Paul and his ex-wife had a nasty breakup with many arguments that eventually had to be settled in court. They fought over custody of the children and who should have the family home. In the end, the court ruled in Paul's favour, giving him custody of the children and the house. Earlier, I told you that Paul's ex-wife moved into a caravan that was parked in Mary's garden. It was only after the divorce that the ex-wife started hinting to Mary that Paul might be the letter writer. She also told Mary that Paul hated her. The ex-wife probably knew where Paul kept the gun in his home. After all, she had lived there with him for nearly 20 years. Perhaps the ex-wife had fabricated evidence against Paul to gain custody of the children and the house. Maybe she then continued to send letters after Paul had been jailed because she wanted him to serve as long as possible. One fact that supports this theory is that Paul's ex-wife's brother had a yellow car, the kind of car a witness had seen near the trap just 20 minutes before Mary drove by could it be that Paul's ex-wife and her brother had planned the whole thing together and that the brother had helped set the trap? An interesting detail about Paul's family history is that Paul himself believed that it was his son who had stolen his gun. The son, on the other hand, has always believed that his father was guilty of Mary's attempted murder and therefore refused to visit his father in prison. Paul's ex-wife reportedly told his son to choose sides. He then chose to take his mother's side in the case, but some also believe there is reason to believe that the son may also have been involved in some way and helped put his father in prison. Paul's son committed suicide in 2002 at the age of 39, and local rumours suggest the reason was guilt guilt that he didn't support his father during his imprisonment or guilt that he knew his father had been innocent. Personally, I don't think this family drama has anything to do with the first letters from Circleville, but that Paul's ex-wife simply took the opportunity to develop a plot involving the letters to get Paul out of the picture after the divorce. The handwriting on the original letters was easy to imitate, and Paul's ex-wife had seen the original letters when Mary and Ron had shown them to her. In addition, around the time of the divorce, the ex-wife began telling Mary and others that she suspected her former husband of being the sender of the threatening letters. One thing that puzzles me here is that if someone had started imitating the original letters wouldn't the original author have been angry about it? The letters seemed to be important to the author and he seemed genuinely upset about the things being written about, so one would assume that the author would be upset if someone started copying the letters. For example, by writing to the police and claiming to be the original author. I spoke earlier about David Longbury, the school bus driver who had tried to get Mary to agree to go out with him. Mary thought, at least at first, that David was the letter writer and that he was teasing and threatening her because she wouldn't go out with him. In 1999, around the time the letter stopped, David was caught raping a 12-year-old girl in Circleville, not by the police, but by one of the girl's relatives. David fled town after this, and his body was later found in Texas. David had hanged himself at a rest stop along the highway. Many believe David was the author of the threatening letters, which stopped when he left town and died. However, there is no other evidence against David or any other person. Who the sender of the letters was still remains a mystery. It is possible that there were several senders. It may well be that there were dozens of people who actually sent the letters. Perhaps people began to entertain themselves and others by sending letters and revealing secrets about people they knew. On the other hand, it is striking that the letters suddenly stopped coming. And I don't know how many people could really write such horrible things to other people just for entertainment. Personally, I'm inclined to believe that Paul's case is a completely separate matter, related to the quarrels between him and his wife. I also think that most of the other letters were written by the same person, the one who started the whole thing around 1977, and then there may have been a few people over the years who copied the original author, and that some of the letters have nothing to do with the original ones. I still wonder, though, how this letter writer could have known so much about people's private lives and their secrets. Maybe the townspeople weren't really that good at keeping their secrets. In a small town, gossip travels fast anyway. Or was the letter writer someone who had special access to people's secrets? A therapist or a priest, for example, in whom people confided? it is over 20 years since the last letter was sent and I do not believe that this case will ever be solved. But I think it's a really interesting case. I love village mysteries like this which don't necessarily involve violence or murder but other kinds of mysteries and strange events. That's all I have to tell you this time. I hope you found it interesting. Thanks for listening. Next time... We'll be on to something else.